Well, now to the remarkable life of one Alan Riverston McCulloch. McCulloch was a leading Australian biologist. He was an illustrator and senior curator at the Australian Museum in Sydney in the early 1900s when it was called the, uh, the National Museum. He was described as a free spirit and he was happiest collecting specimens on field trips. But one trip to Papua New Guinea tarnished his reputation and it would appear further damaged his health. But there's more. McCulloch's enthralling, complicated story is being told in a new book called The Naturalist by Brendan Atkins. And Brendan joins us now. Welcome to Saturday Extra. Thank you, Geraldine. Uh, Brendan, what we need to know, I suppose, is that he really was one of Australia's leading biologists, but most of us don't know about him. When did you come across him and come up with this sort of conviction he ought to be better known? Well, I first came across him actually as a science student in the early 1980s. I was studying um, freshwater ecology and the lecturer mentioned that um, the Murray Cod, the scientific name of which is Macalacella pili, was named after Alan McCulloch at the Australian Museum. But I didn't have a clue as to whether he was alive or dead, didn't know anything else about him, but somehow that did just lodge in my mind. And um, it was uh, many years later that I got the job at the Australian Museum, my dream job as, as editor of their magazine, Explore. And I spent a happy nine years just behind the scenes, talking to people, collecting stories, getting them to write stories. But it was in my second edition of um, the magazine that uh, I was given a story about Alan McCulloch. And it was an account of his trip to Murray Island in 1907, as a 22-year-old, I guess he was, to collect artefacts and scientific specimens. And he, I think you tell me, he was the first man to record all of Australia's fish, Indigenous fish population, is that right? Well, there have been many workers in that area before Alan McCulloch, a couple of them, Edgar Waite and James Douglas Ogilby, were um, his mentors. Mm. But it was a real mess. It had been going back for quite a number of um, years, back into the 18th century even, when early fishes were described overseas as, you know, they'd given the name of something that looked vaguely like it from the Northern Hemisphere. And um, McCulloch, his life's work, really, his whole career in the fish biology area was to sort out all of those taxonomic problems and document all of the species in a checklist of Australian fishes, which was published in four parts. And, and what year are we talking about? Um, well, he died in 1925 and um, his assistant, Gilbert Whitley, published it in McCulloch's name posthumously, posthumously in 1929. Gee, I suppose I would have imagined it had been done earlier, but maybe I shouldn't have. I mean, there was this intense interest in the natural world, wasn't there, in this period? That was the very sort of mark of the late Victorian era and, and Edwardian era, the colonial uh, habit of collecting everything and this hunger to understand Australia. Would you put it like that? Is that what motivated him? He was just there at the right time. He joined the museum in 1898, just a couple of years before Federation. At the age of 13? Yeah, he was actually 12. It was a week oh. before his 13th birthday. So he, it was his secondary and tertiary education in a way. Um, but the museum had a tradition of this sort of uh, master-apprentice mentoring of its uh, younger staff. And um, so he joined as a volunteer cadet and it was three years before they put him on the payroll. And uh, it, was, it was something that he repaid later with um, taking on many cadets that went on to have 
long careers in the museum. And he became curator of vertebrates, aren't <laughs> that gorgeous, in his late 20s. Also a very good illustrator and you've got several beautiful uh, works, examples of his work in the book. Yeah, I think he was an artist actually and um, one of the great mysteries is where are all of the artworks, the non-scientific artworks um, that he must surely have produced at Julian Ashton's art school, which he, he attended for more than 15 years. He took himself off there. Yes, he did, yeah, um, and began a tradition, actually, for museum scientists. Illustration was a key skill, and many of the junior scientists followed him there to that school. So people might be listening <laughs> who, who might have an idea. So you do feel there's probably a, a sort of trove of his work somewhere. Well, I hope so. I hope so. I mean, I haven't been able to trace many members of his more immediate family, only quite distant relatives... But um, his sisters married into some very well-known Sydney families. Yes, the Fairfaxes. Fairfax Ross and um, DeFore. Look, um, he was a very frequent visitor to Lord Howe Island, and this is an important part of his life. Tell us what attracted him. Well, he first went to Lord Howe Island with Edgar Waite in 1902 as a 17-year-old and was totally blown away by the biodiversity there. Lord Howe Island is quite difficult to get to and in those days it was a you know a two-day steamer ride from Sydney. Mm. And once you were there, if the seas were rough, you, you could be stranded there and that's what happened to them over the Christmas New Year period. They were actually there for seven weeks, not two. And over that period, um, the islanders took Alan in and he made some very good friends that he kept for the rest of his life. So he would go back there often, not so much for scientific trips, although he did plenty of those, but um, just for to get away from the museum, spend Christmas there. It's some mental health issues that later become very important and we'll come to start it. Well, you could see it there, you know, start to sort of see it emerging. Interestingly, already at this point in the early 1900s, he described the devastation caused by black rats on the ecology of the island. And it, was eventually, it wasn't solved for a century, was it really? No, that's right. That was uh, 1917 or 18 that the Macambo ran aground and in the process of getting the passengers ashore, more than two black rats made it ashore, obviously. Right. And they just took over. And within two years, there was absolute devastation. Um, the main crop on the island was and still is the uh, Kentia palm seed industry. Um, so McCulloch was the first naturalist to come back from the island and say, look, it's absolutely devastating what's going on over there. But interestingly, he, he talked about the the effect on the ecology of the island, not just on the commercial crop. And um, he, he gave public lectures about it wherever he could. Mm. Uh, let me tell listeners that um, Brendan Atkins is my guest, talking about a man that we all obviously ought to know more about, Alan Riverston McCulloch, and uh, Brendan's described him in The Naturalist. You give us a glimpse into his passion for expeditions. Now, they really were such adventures. They were biologically rich and he describes that especially the trip he made to PNG with the famous photographer Frank Hurley about which I knew absolutely nothing I mean I knew about Hurley but not this what was the purpose of their trip well Frank Hurley had been to uh, Papua in 1921 and he'd made a, a, a cinematic film called Pearls and Savages but he'd been up in the highlands um, he wanted to contact tribes that were relatively uncolonized and uh, unmissionized and so he, he decided to go back again in 1922. And so he approached the museum for a collecting permit. Um, 
the first trip, uh, he collected a lot of artefacts, but they were confiscated because he didn't have the permits in place. You imagine this kind of colonial bureaucracy, an Australian colonial bureaucracy, you might add, <laughs> in Papua New Guinea, which was in place to protect um, the local culture from collectors. Collectors like yeah. him. <laughs> yeah. But he thought, well, if it's going back to the Australian Museum, then he might be able to borrow a few spears and uh, arrows and that sort of thing to promote his film. So, um, yeah, he went back and somehow Alan McCulloch got added into the expedition. It only emerged later that uh, Hurley and McCulloch were actually really good friends. And Hurley invited him personally and, and McCulloch was right up for it. He'd been wanting to go to Papua New Guinea, um, so he was only too happy to go along. And what did they uh, collect that embroiled them in such controversy? Well, mostly, I mean, they collected about 1,800 cultural artefacts, which they kind of bartered or traded for tobacco and steel axes and that sort of thing. But um, at one point in the village of Kamari, they became very interested in this ravi. It's a giant sort of longhouse, I suppose, 200 foot long. And at the back of the longhouse, behind this screened off area, were these sacred masks that were only ever brought out for very special occasions and which women and children weren't allowed to see. And at the foot of each mask was a bundle of these bull roarers. They're a kind of a, a like a wooden dagger-shaped thing that is swung around the head and creates a, a strange sound and um, a very powerful spiritually mm. to those, the people that believe in them. Now, Alan McCulloch really wanted a bundle of these bull roarers for the museum collection because they were very special and they were refused. It was like trying to buy the crown jewels or something. Mm. There were some kind of threats on, on the part of the interpreter apparently, you know, saying, mm. look, you know, the white man's going to be really angry if you don't sell them these things. So he ended up taking one from each bundle, paying for them, but he also stole another one or two. As he wrote in his report to the director, I got away with another two. That was one instance. Um, in another, with Hurley, um, now they travelled by boat up to Lake Murray and they saw no sign of, of any of the people that they were looking to contact. But they did come across a hut and it was unattended. So they, they left gifts and came back the next day. The gifts were still there, so they thought, right, well, we'll ransack the hut. And they stole basically the contents of the hut Dear. and brought them back to the Australian Museum um, where they still are today. Oh, <laughs> gee, mm. this is all the dilemmas that the British Museum faces. Uh, so this is really fascinating context, isn't it? Maybe I, we should sort of get to the complexity of the man. Uh, he got malaria, he got dysentery and this mental stress. Despite all that, he heads off a few years later to Honolulu. So that's the early 20s, isn't it? And he never returns to Australia. Mm. What happens? Well, in uh, 1924, he was invited to the Pan Pacific Union's Food and Agriculture Congress. He was warmly invited by the organisers, but the trustees of the Australian Museum uh, prevented him from going. They weren't really clear about their reasons. So um, within a few days of that decision, um, Alan McCulloch became quite ill and his mental health problems um, suddenly descended on him and, you know, blossomed. Can I just ask you, mm. those incidents in PNG, had they really damaged his reputation? Like, can we assume this played into the mental health issues? Um, look, I, I keep that question open in the book because um, there's there's all sorts of elements in there. Was he damaged by dealing with powerful 
spiritual objects. Oh, for right. instance, coming into contact with sorcery. Oh, the grave dro- robbers of the Tutankhamun's grave and so on. It was the same year, yes. you know, 1922. Oh. So um, maybe, maybe it was the pure, you know, physical effect of malaria and dysentery, dreadful chronic diseases um, that he suffered. Or maybe it was his torn loyalties um, at the Australian Museum. He'd been a very loyal and super hardworking guy and he was very loyal to the trustees as well. I came across letters where he would write to the, the director of the museum and say, would you, would you kindly thank the trustees for, for the latest pay rise that I've been given, you know, mm-hmm. uh, those times when they did actually give him a pay rise. Um, and in 1920, the then director, Robert Etheridge, who'd been in the chair for 27 years or so, died, and there was this kind of power grab, and a couple of the trustees decided that they were going to run science down at the museum. They made life very difficult for everybody, and McCulloch would have been very torn between loyalty to the trustees and loyalty to the staff. If you've already got some sort of depressive illness, and there are signs that he did have. Bipolar, possibly. Well, so, look, I can tell the tragedy of where you're going is that he took his own life. He shot himself, didn't he? He did, In Honolulu. So, yeah, in 1924 he wasn't allowed to go, but um, that triggered his uh, a series of health problems and he eventually had a complete nervous breakdown in March of 1925 and he retreated to Lord Howe Island to recuperate, as he often did when he was ill. But while he was there, his friends behind the scenes had arranged for the New South Wales government to pay half his fare to Honolulu for a, a fisheries conference that actually didn't exist. Oh. <laughs> so he, he gets to Honolulu after um, several weeks on this luxury liner, uh, only to find the conference uh, doesn't exist. And so he set about organising it. And over the next couple of months, he, he became a bit of a, a star on the, the social scene in Honolulu. He dined with the governor... All the best homes in Honolulu wanted Alan McCulloch there. And he was the darling of the press there as well. Mm. But his suicide note does sort of suggest that he, he did detect something was the matter with him and it was time. Well, the, um, the Pan Pacific Union people published a press release after his death saying that, that perfectly described extreme acute manic depression or yeah. bipolar. Melancholia, as it was called in those days, wasn't it? And yeah. How old was he, by the way, by then? Forty. Forty, is that all? Just, God, yeah. Gee. And look, I understand he is commemorated at Lord Howe and there are, as you say, fish named after him. Indeed, yeah, there's quite a few fish named after him. Thanks to his assistant, Gilbert Whitley. It was Whitley who named the Murray Cod McCullough Keller. And um, yes, another, another fish was the Lord Howe Island or the McCulloch's anemone fish, which I'm wearing on my T-shirt today. Amphiprion McCullochai, but um, he named a whole bunch of fish after McCulloch. Other experts, they named dragonflies after him, you know, that he'd collected Mm. in Papua. And um, there was even a fisheries trawler named after him. Actually, 22 years after his death, 1947, the forerunner of the CSIRO, CSIR, named a trawler A.R. McCulloch. Mm. So he really was remembered. He wasn't forgotten, which you're doing your best to make sure that... A new century doesn't forget him. Look, thank you very much for putting all this effort in and for joining us. Thank you, Geraldine. It's been lovely talking to you. Brendan Atkins, 
He's the author of The Naturalist, The Remarkable Life of Alan Riverston McCulloch, published by New South Books. You might like to consider that for your summer reading list. And just something from last week when we were talking about that Google case of the um, the case of the uh, entrepreneur in, in Sydney taking Google on. Um, and I was told about Billion Dollar Code. It's a Netflix, apparently, which is very much related to this business of um, the big giants and people they deal with. So you might like to put that into your little uh, uh, group of things to do. And just a couple of interesting feedback. People have come back and said, will the Conservative voting, given we were talking about the British situation, take six weeks again? Well, look, they have said no. They've said it'll all definitely be settled by Friday of next week. Um, and another listener, ignored here and largely in the UK, is the excellent recent Al Jazeera set of documentaries on the corruption permeating the UK Labor Party, detailed forensic backed by a trove of documents as well as members and party officers spilling the beans. So I'll offer that to you as well. Another listener, the British Tories are behaving like the court of Louis XIV. They should watch out. Um, so, look, thank you very much indeed for your feedback. Um, we really do appreciate it. I'll just remind you again to, about Rear Vision, uh, talking about the Iranian women involved in Iranian history. You go to our ABC Listen app, you can find all our previous stories and any today that you might have not heard completely. Um, it's really well worth visiting. So thank you for your company today. My thanks to our terrific team, Sky Doherty, Belinda Summer, Isabel Summer, uh, Summerson and Anne-Marie de Betancourt today. We'll be back next week. Here's Jonathan Green now. Bye-bye. Getting in touch with ABC RN is easy. Join the conversation live using the ABC Listen app's call and text features.